Good morning, everybody. I mean, I actually can't understand how Almory could have put me with such insignificant people this morning as the first... <laughs> yeah, we're also embarrassed. <laughs> as my first panel. In fact, I decided to dress up for them, so I'm wearing my Toyota Yaris silver shoes, especially, <laughs> especially for the warriors we have here. Um, ladies and gentlemen, we actually are sitting at an extraordinary time in South African history, and we've only just sort of emerged from it, and sitting with me on the stage are are two warriors um, who've come through um, an extraordinary time of extricating the country from, or not, we're not out of it yet, but fighting extraordinarily strong forces of state capture, corruption, and general greed and evil. And I really do think they deserve a massive round of applause. Before you go on, uh, she played an enormous role in it too, so she's being unnecessarily modest. No, no, that's just... Yeah. It's just my job. I couldn't do it without them. So that's the, the Kumbaya feast is over. Um, I, I think what's important when we have this discussion around um, the inner uh, capacity and the mental and spiritual and emotional capacity to fight back something, um, begins with a personal discussion. So we're going to start, I know they don't like it very much because they're legal people, personal doesn't really work very well for them, but we'll just do it briefly, because I think there's certain set things that, that get put into place when you're able to hold on to an ethical core and center and not be afraid. I want to then speak a little bit about the legal ethical issues in South Africa, South African law, constitutional law, the systems that, are, that have survived, because several of them have been severely broken and were held up by people like Linus and, and Tuli, and then perhaps I think um, we'll close off the conversation about speaking about the future of South Africa, what we need. Um, I wish you could have eavesdropped on this casual conversation between the two of them because it's been phenomenal already, so I'm so sorry that you didn't get to hear that, but maybe I'll like, extricate it from them earlier on. Um, the interesting thing about both of you is that you grew up at the same time, more or less, in South Africa. Um, both of you, uh, your parents, uh, your father didn't want you to do what you did, which is interesting. And your parents also, kind of like, well, you know, as a girl, what is, you know, really, what, what, uh, what can you do? So I understand that terrain, because I also grew, was born in the same, same time as all of you. So the world didn't really... Thanks. The world at that time... Would you like a coffee, advocate, Martin Seller? No. <laughs> well, goodness, you're going to drink them all. Um, <laughs> Both of you, can you, um, in a sense, speak about the first moment of, of understanding that uh, your place in the world, as a woman, first of all, because we were made aware that we were women, you particularly, advocate, uh, by your father? Well, my father was very supportive of me being the best I can be in society. He only had a, a limited view of what we could aspire for. And, and it was probably a mixture of patriarchy and apartheid. This was the time when the most educated people we knew, the most educated people we knew in the township were nurses, clerks, and maybe policemen a bit. Mm. Mm. And my father had never been to school. 
And he thought, yes, we should go to school, but study long enough to be able to get instructions from uh, the white community. And in my case, by his standards, I was now well-educated. So it wasn't really gender, because he also discouraged my brother from continuing with his education, and he left at grade 10, and I was also asked to leave at grade 10. So was that because he felt that um, it was impossible, uh, in a sense, to overcome the structural inequalities that existed, and you should just accept that and carry on? Or what, what do you think uh, led to that? Because when you wanted to be a lawyer, he, he wasn't necessarily supportive of that. No, well, we never got, with my father, we never got to the fight about being a lawyer. It was my mother who thought I shouldn't be a lawyer. Right. And, and she was the one who encouraged me to be educated because she had an opportunity to be educated. But she chose to go to domestic work because she wanted good clothes and the missionaries were not giving her any good clothes. She wanted all of us to be educated, but the influence of my church, I was raised as a Seventh-day Adventist, was that um, Christians should take professions that would allow them to be upright citizens. And my pastor came to my house having um, heard that I wanted to study law and asked me not to study law because lawyers were crooks. Oh. <laughs> Is the pastor still alive today? And have you, have you been back to have tea with him? <laughs> I haven't had tea with him, but he's still alive. But I would love to have tea with him because, again, he came from a parochial view of what is a lawyer. We wouldn't know that, you know, talented prosecutors such as uh, our colleague Benissier are lawyers. Judges are lawyers. Public protectors are lawyers. But our limited view of the lawyer was the guy in the corner shops somewhere next to the train station who is mostly approached by people we know have definitely killed someone. Yeah. Glynis, <laughs> you're, you're growing up in Kimberley and then uh, wanting to be a lawyer and your parents sort of hands-offish in a way, uh, raising you you preferred dogs, you thought people were scumbags um, still does, she lies it's nonsense um, um, and that you know, our, our, our worst nature gets the better of us and that the, uh, so, so your worldview growing up in apartheid South Africa as well, in, in Kimberley with these parents uh, what is it? What is driving you? What is making you rebel? Because you're both rebels, actually. I'm not sure that I'm a, a rebel. Um, I do tend to get into a lot of trouble, though. No, it's not a rebel. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, my parents weren't necessarily hands-offish. My father wanted a son, and he was very disappointed with a daughter. My mother wanted a ballerina, and she got me. So um, <laughs> that didn't work out too well. All I wanted to do was ride horses, uh, which is what I did. Um, uh, I think probably they were the most astonished apart from myself that I in fact studied law, finished it and, and, and made it a career. Uh, I don't think either of them thought that, uh, that I was capable of having a career. Uh, and I often also thought I wasn't. <laughs> I, I merely mention this because uh, if you have younger children like I do, you start seeing how people form their worldviews. And it's often those of us who are the least, least popular and who feel the most insecure and the most misunderstood, who for some reason rise up later on and, and become, I think, such key role players. It's very interesting to see that. I mean, a lot of the, the popular, beautiful people just 
sort of, not for through, uh, any fault of their own, but because I think they engage in the world differently. I think the more hardship there is sometimes, the more one gets forged. Um, I wanted to speak a little bit about your involvement in the 1980s. I think we've arrived in South Africa at an Inzal moment, which is very interesting and we can unpack in some ways. Do, do, do you, uh, does the audience understand the difference between the Inzal and the Exile movement? Nod? Yes? No? Yeah? Near? Yeah? Well, there was a, you know, the, the UDF uh, was formed in the 1980s as an internal movement of uh, 100 or more so uh, activist organizations. Advocate Marancella became involved politically actively there and was arrested because of that. Um, but it had a particular culture and way of being which we are, which, which in a sense I think was sidelined in the ANC. Um, both of you voted for the ANC in the, night, in the, early, in the early years. It's just... Not a lot of mistake I'll make again. What's that? <laughs> Not a mistake I'll make again. <laughs> um, we won't ask you who you will vote for, Glynis, because, I mean, that would be putting you on the spot. Um, but what is interesting, I think, with, our, with the current ANC president, Cyril Ramaphosa, and what the ANC is, is that it appears as if there's a generation of young people in South Africa who survived the internal struggle in South Africa. So the ANC had Nelson Mandela on the island as a monk, becoming a spiritual being, in a sense, in a world statement. It had... Um, Oliver Tambo in London becoming the international face of the party, uh, struggling for recognition from the West, which in a sense ignored the ANC, and then going to Russia. So that's playing. Then we had Jacob Zuma and others in the camps in Africa. And we, that's, I think, where a lot of the arms deal stuff happened. Joe Matisse, uh, uh, the president Zuma himself. And then we had the internal movements in South Africa. Can you sort of give us a little bit of an insight into your political involvement, particularly with the UDF and the principles of the UDF, and which eventually found their way, threaded into the Constitution, which you helped to write at some point later on um, as, a, as an activist at this. Thank you, Marianne. I, I, I started getting involved in the struggle at the age of about 16 or so, or even earlier, just after June 16. How it all started was that my home in Damini Soweto was pretty close to Regina Mundi, which is a church where everything was happening. And we would, we would all go there when there would be a memorial service of someone and, and listen to speeches about what was going wrong. My father, on the other hand, it's interesting that you talk about Mandela being a monk in Robben Island, because my earliest recollections about the struggle and what was it all about was information from my father. And there were two things that he always spoke about. He always spoke about how they were forcibly removed from a place called Albertine, where they had free title and, um, to, to the land, and then they were moved to come to Tamini. And then he spoke very fondly about Nelson Mandela, uh, who was in Robben Island. Well, at that stage, he would say it was Robert Island, because my father had not really um, been to school. and. He wouldn't have read some of those things. Um, regarding my involvement more, more meaningfully, it was then mostly in the 80s when there was the formation of the South African Youth Congress, the UDF, and I was also involved in the founding of COSAT. Incidentally, the current president was in the negotiating team for the founding of Kosati. He was on the other side. We were on, there were two camps of unions when we started. I was part of the UDF 7, negotiating, negotiating for the National Union of Printers and Allied Workers. And um, was pretty much involved until the late stages of the, um, the formation of Kosati. 
but had to go back to university because I was working for the trade union movement during the holidays. That also introduced me to the struggle in, in, a, in a broader way because once I was involved in the struggle, one day we happened to visit Mama Albertina Sisulu, and what a fantastic human being. It's, this year is her centenary, and she's one of those really unsung heroes, a person of integrity, a person of great compassion, and an inclusive leader in terms of race, gender, and other forms of difference. And I spent a lot of time going to her house during holidays and just listening to her and discussing with her. And later, of course, she became a former leader of the, of the UDF. What else do you want to know? I, no, I think what's interesting there is that that set the platform, I think, for yes. a particular view of the non-racial South Africa, um, a South Africa that uh, I think later came to sort of shift somewhere else, in, in, uh, you know, under Jake, President Jacob Zuma's rule, for different That's reasons. True. For different That's reasons. But I think it's important to remember there are many people like yourself who remained in the ANC and in South Africa who weren't quite sure as, as the state capture began. Yes. Uh, that that is where it was headed, but we'll get to that point. Glynis, your, your own views, to become a prosecutor, and you start prosecuting um, um, in, in Pretoria, but mostly commercial crimes, I mean, that, uh, uh, which in a sense are not always just commercial, they're political as well, in a sense. Um, your experience of South Africa becoming a prosecutor in the, in the old sort of system, and then moving into the new South Africa. And, uh, uh, I started prosecuting in Johannesburg, and I was lucky it was towards sort of the, the end of prosecuting uh, what would fall under apartheid legislation crimes. So crimes under the Writers' Assembly Act, uh, past law offences, that type Quite of thing. Quite crude law. Very crude law, but mm. I, I was never exposed to it. Um, those prosecutions had already mostly phased out by then. Um, and I certainly didn't have to do any of them. <clears throat> I'm not sure what I would have done if I had had to do it. Um, and anyway, I was way too junior, so I was prosecuting the small stuff. Um, I prosecuted for a couple of years in, in ordinary courts, and then, and then I started specialising in, in commercial crime, which is really quite clean. It's always just about money, uh, and it's somebody else's money at that, so it doesn't, doesn't really matter. Um, yes, there were political overtones in, in commercial crime because uh, it became very clear that, uh, especially, you know, building up to 1994, there was there were certainly uh, offences that you could term white-collar crimes that that showed that uh, you know the kind of uh, fraud, um, corruption, particularly corruption, and what people now term tender fraud. Uh, certainly happened pre-1994. That's what I was... And, um, and we prosecuted for it then, too. Uh, the difference was it was a lot more subtle. Um, considerably harder to, to find and investigate, but also in its execution more subtle. Um, after 1994, it sort of became a free-for-all. And it, it, you know, it, it, it increased uh, quite dramatically. And, and became a lot less subtle. Uh, so, for instance, pre-1994, out of a, a tender of 100 rand, you know, you would, you would find that somebody had stolen 20. Um, Post-1994, as, as time went by, it just increased. So, eventually, we were at a point where in a tender of 100 rand, uh, a couple of people had stolen everything. Uh, 
and, and that is the, the marked difference. Then also the marked difference becomes the adoption of the constitution and mm -hmm. a very sophisticated system of law in South Africa. You know, coming from this, this crude base uh, of, of racial, of laws aimed at oppressing people, dispossessing people, controlling their movement. We get this beautiful, extraordinarily complex constitution, which you helped to draft as well. Both of you then find yourselves. Uh, interestingly enough, there are characters in your lives who intersect uh, later on in the prosecuting sure. authority, including the president himself, the former president. We had to say it. <laughs> Lovely <laughs> former, to say it. Former president Zuma. Just let that <laughs> really roll out of your mouth. Ex-president. Ex-president Ex Zuma. Oh. You know, there was a time when we never thought Nelson Mandela would be released. You know, you, you, when you were in it, you thought it's not possible. And, you know, it could, couldn't. And there's been a time in the last 20 years where many of us have thought... We're not going to be able to say former President Zuma. Now we're saying it. It's quite something. Something to be proud of. Um, then we're looking at, we, we then look at the Constitution and, and, and where we arrive. And, uh, and this is where I want to perhaps speak about the law a little bit because um, you believe people are intrinsically unethical. I think leaders bring out the best and the worst in us. And the law is something clinical and sterile. And you can sort out right from wrong in the, with the law. It's Absolutely. a very clear system. Perhaps your, your view of the law is slightly different to that, or um, what are your feelings around this living organism, this thing we had to marry with a battered, bruised, broken society, and, and together with customary law and various other laws that exist around human behavior? Do you believe people are intrinsically corrupt? No, I don't believe people are intrinsically corrupt. I, I think we're all born pure. Think of a beautiful little baby and think how loving all of them are and how pure they are in terms of their outlook in life. But we all, of course, socialized by various agents about what's right and what's wrong and ultimately what's important and what's not. A lot of people who are corrupt are not necessarily people who are brought up to believe that stealing is fine. I have noticed that it starts with need to greed, particularly my experience as a perpetrator, and probably, Glennis, you might have found that when you, when you delve deeper into how it all started. My role as a perpetrator brought me to spaces where I found that there were two kinds of people that ended up being involved in corrupt deals. One would be need. Uh, one of the basic needs is just the need to keep your job. A lot of whistleblowers ended up losing their jobs. I know of a woman in, in Timpopo, for example, who was eventually fired for pretty much something similar to using too much toilet paper, although it, it wasn't really using too much toilet paper, but she was fired for not being able to produce a box of um, applications for a secretary position, which box of applications was for her own PA which had happened about three years ago. But what was the real deal? It was that they'd asked her to sign on a tender, uh, on a contract. They, there was a contract for somebody who was um, going to provide um, consulting services. At, at that stage, the price was 5 million rand. And then the DG writes back, or HOD writes back to her and say, please increase the amount to 10 million. She writes back and say, says there isn't enough work for 10 million. The, the HOD writes back and says, find the extra work. And she writes back and says, I can't find it. And then 
eventually she then gets asked for those uh, CVs for PAs and she can't find that and she, she gets fired. And another one in, in the case that involves uh, MEC, former MEC Mike Mabuyakulu, the lady comes to the to the Treasury Department. She finds Treasury is running air shows which shouldn't be run by your CFO in, in an ordinary organization. Finds that they, they, they funded a jazz festival that never happened, a couple of millions involved. All of these things involve millions. And they're asking her to sign more things that um, would, would involve millions. And she doesn't think Treasury should be doing these things and doesn't think anybody should be doing them to start with. And um, in no time, uh, she, she gets into trouble with her colleagues, her, her subordinates, who are fairly senior people and they've been in the system forever. And they tell her that uh, if she doesn't want to play ball, they're going to get the MEC to deal with her. And within a few days, the MEC uh, uh, sends her a letter asking, or the HOD sends her a letter asking her why she shouldn't be suspended. But what's the suspension? Nothing to do with refusing to do unlawful things. The suspension is you being too hierarchical mm. and rude. Mm. So people start finding uh, or start be beginning to use, use the system against uh, yeah. people doing their jobs. But you found that in the NPA. Once, you know, once the NPA had become caught up, initially you thought, oh, this is great. You know, it's, out, it's, it's outside of the Department of Justice. Uh, we, we can prosecute. We can mm. do this. Um, but then you begin to it dawns on you, oh, my God, they, that this system is being captured for a particular political motive and people become more and more afraid of speaking out and doing their jobs. I mean, that's so interesting that it's unspoken, unsaid, and it's about need uh, to keep your job. Um, and I, I, mean, I think it, we need to speak about how, how, yes. how can we not speak out when we see something wrong. So tell us a bit about uh, the dawning realization that the NPA itself is being captured by President Zuma in particular after the charges <laughs> and, the, and the stage gets set for him to be to become the president of the country. Well, it, it didn't only start under no. ex-president Zuma. Um, and at the outset, let me say that I hold the view that if you have to lie and cheat to keep your job, it's not a job worth keeping. Um, it started off, and I'm not suggesting for one moment that there wasn't uh, political interference in the, in the prosecuting services prior to the NPA. I just wasn't aware of it. Personally, but, but certainly I'm not suggesting that there wasn't any. I'm quite sure there was. Uh, and other people who were there before then have uh, said that there was. Uh, again, more subtle. Uh, certainly after the advent of the National Prosecuting Authority, there were a couple of things that were concerning. So uh, Tuli will know that during the, uh, during the negotiations for, for the new constitution, uh, there was a sticking point about a national director and, and whether there should be one and if there was one, should it be a political appointment? And that was a big issue. And at the end, it was a compromise. We all, and when I say we all, the people within the justice system felt that there shouldn't be one. Um, and we referred to it then as the super AG, the super That's attorney right. general. So prior to that, the attorneys general had been the top structure of the justice system. It worked very well, um, because they all held the same rank. They were peers in terms of ability, experience, etc. 
and they kept each other in check. If one did something that was a little bit odd, the others would have been on him immediately. And I say him because there were no women. Um, there was a very distinct glass ceiling in the justice service, and it was right down there. Mm -hmm. um, with the advent of the national director, um, and then it was, a, it was a compromise to make it a political appointment. And we all knew that trouble was coming. I mean, it was a matter of trouble. It's, it's inevitable. Um, but exactly what the trouble would be and how much trouble it would be, that we had no idea. But everybody was concerned. And almost immediately there was, again, very subtle uh, pushing the, the envelope politically in the NPA. But it was never overt, it was very subtle, and it, it wasn't, uh, it, it wasn't was brutal. Just be a phone call, sort of make, yeah, sort of give bail you know, or... Oh, do you think you, you could know. maybe do this? She said, no, then it was fine, it was left at that. Um, I said, no, many times. Um, give this a warning instead of a, no. And nothing further happened. So, but, but the, you know, it was there, it was always there. But the, the big thing that bothered us, and it still bothers me, and it's something that we should change, is that Lady Justice, prior to the... NPA, so the Department of Justice, Lady Justice, is the lady with the scales, everybody knows it, and she doesn't have a blindfold. Um, she does have a blindfold, she doesn't that. see. Oh, yes. She has a blindfold, yes. she doesn't see. She sees nothing. She sees no colour, no creed, no sex, no religion. Everybody's the same to her. The NPA's Lady Justice doesn't have a blindfold. They took it off. Is that true? Is yeah. that, that's the, yeah. the logo, it doesn't yeah. have a blindfold. They took it off. And we all knew shit was coming. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You've got to look for yeah. the signs. Because yeah. yeah. if Lady Justice can see who she's dealing with, that's the problem. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, that always bothered us, and it still bothers me today. But it also comes, I mean, the arms deal, I mean, we know where we come from, Parte South Africa. People often justify current corruption by saying it was there in the past, which is we, none of us buy that. It's, it's, it's not an argument that is sustainable or, or, to, or to justify anything. But um, as an activist and as a, as a lawyer and as a constitutionalist, um, when one began to realize the extent of the arms deal, in fact, we had a president who came in with those uh, dropped charges and who's now le leaving with them, bookended, uh, in a sense. So it was always going to be a struggle, but d did either of you have a sense of just how huge the struggle would become? That it wouldn't just be then about saving one man from his day in court, but it would become an entire project called state capture and, let's hold that thought there, yeah. in a global sense too, because it's happened in, uh, with Putin, it's happened in the United States, it's a global problem. State capture is a global issue, politically, I think in a post-ideological age, perhaps. No, certainly, the state capture is something the people of California rebelled against many, many centuries ago, and that's why they asked for the sunshine laws where most things are are done in the open and hopefully some of the provinces will follow the Gauteng province in terms of making sure that advertisements are open but also the selection and, and appointment process in the tender system is equally open. But let's go back to apartheid, corruption and present corruption. There's a book that has been written by Henny van Furen. There is a link between what happened in the past. There's an American uh, um, uh, First Nations saying that if you don't fix the hem of your dress, you'll soon be without a dress. What happened 
in the system is that there was corruption and corruption soon became a cover-up. Let's just take with the first BEE scheme. The first BEE scheme was promoted under the Treasury. But what has always bothered Moilet Zimbegi is why select politicians to be partners in business schemes. And then that model was followed, that BEE was primarily about bringing people with political clout into the scheme to share. So I think we have to be a little bit more deeper, deep dive into the roots of corruption. But I would agree with Glennis that it has gone out of hand. And, and I like what you mentioned about it used to be 10 to 20%, which is something I learned in Nigeria, that it used, in Europe it's still 10, 10 percent right. or so. And, yeah. and in Nigeria, when I went there in 2010, for my first outing as a protector, they told this joke about an African minister who went to, to the East and found his colleague rich and asked, why are you rich given the fact that we're not paid much? as ministers and public representatives. And that other fellow said, you see that road, 10%. Mm. And two years later, he comes to visit the, the minister in Africa. And the minister in Africa is not rich. He's living in opulence. It's a castle. And he has a, a, a showroom for a, a, a car garage. And us, you said you were paid even less than us. How is it that? You, you seem now to be far richer than me. And then he says, you see that hospital? And he looks and says, where? He says, you see that hospital? He looks, where? And you know the answer. <laughs> <laughs> I laughed, though, like you did. This was the beginning of 2010. 2010. 2010. And never in my life did I think that anybody could be that terrible to steal everything and leave nothing for the poor. Until I did some of those uh, investigations, a guy who was paid for building 400 RDP, no, for building 400 millions worth of RDP housing, only built one, the showroom, but was paid the whole four million. Uh, the one who built pipes to nowhere in, in, in the free state, where he was paid to end the bucket system. He was paid, but the bucket system was still there when we went there. Why was the bucket system still there? It was because he built the toilets, which was cheaper to build the rooms, the toilets, the toilet seats and etc. And then, but no piping system mm. and no sewage system, and hence the report was piped to nowhere. Yeah. Mm. It was a bit like the toilets at Nkanda. Oh, they also oh, piped to nowhere. Uh, <laughs> But, but Glissa, your sense also, um, uh, what is amazing though, you know, is um, I, I want to sort of quote Marx uh, to the two of you, not, not Karl Marx, Groucho Marx. Um, Groucho Marx always used to say, who are you going to believe, me or your eyes? Um, which I like very much, because if you have a community uh, who understands, and there's some in the Eastern, they're everywhere, you've been to the, the, the Gogotlaminis. If you have a community who is, at the moment, when I, mean, I was at a Scopa hearing two days ago, where CETA, the State Information Technology Agency, said that in December it didn't have money to pay salaries because of a corrupt deal that, that SAPS, which is a criminal syndicate on some levels, had done with Mr. Keith Keating, a sole supplier, for over 17 years. So, you know, eventually what starts happening is the employees of, 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 of CETA begin to see, oh my God, this is affecting me, I'm not getting paid, ESCOM. 
you know, uh, optimum mind. But what is extraordinary about the Gupta leaks and the, and, and the Guptas themselves and the family and how they arrived in South Africa is when you look at those emails that the Daily Maverick happened to obtain legally, we legally obtained those, uh, those emails, you see how deep the system is, that it almost feels like there was another brain behind it. They had people in home affairs, they had people in the free state, they had people in provincial, municipal positions, they had people everywhere who were willing um, to do the bidding. Or, and and you know, it's quite astounding, it's almost as if people fell into a trance. Uh, while the two of you then begin to look at the sort of the legal aspects of it and see, my, my God, this is actually a raid. It's treasonous. It's a treasonous raid on the country by people who claim to represent us. It's almost so horrifying. You immediately, I mean, the minute you started exposing it, they started targeting you and you too. You know, you were both targeted by a very, I think, powerful uh, cabal of people. Um, and it's quite scary when we sit here now and look what we've come out of, actually. Um, and that's chapter 9, and, and it was a URL gift from President Zuma. Um, <laughs> the gift one of the, on one of the good gifts <laughs> that kept on giving right until the end. I love that sort of relationship that happened there. Um, you were speaking earlier on about ethics and how do we stop, how do we change this uh, need uh, and greed uh, into service? Because I know the UDF and I know there are many people uh, in, in, in the DA as well where the issue of service and serving, serving the public, serving fellow human beings, particularly I think what's interesting is one expected the white minority racist government to only look after one group of people and to abuse everyone else. It's kind of ethically that's what they were about. But you almost are horrified that people who themselves have been at the receiving end of abuse and uh, horrendous for years on end would, would do the same. What is the mindset uh, of the ANC? What, what is the mindset of the deployees of the ruling party? Um, I think what's the, mi what's the mindset of our communities, South Africans? And I think we have lost a little bit of our own morality. We're living in a world of instant success. Corporate world has also been a little bit part of it. A little um, bit. I mean, they enabled it. Exactly. But yeah. it all boils down to that emphasis on the appearance of success as opposed to real success, because real success might take longer to achieve. I spoke about need when you really are going to lose your job. In this case, I chose two women who chose not to play ball, and they lost their jobs. They went to us. We fought and they, they, they went back into the system and, and many others. But there's also another need, um, ESCOM, where a lot of the people that you're talking about that eventually became part of that syndicate are people who had no jobs at the time the syndicate found them and deployed them. Or they had jobs that were not paying them well and they were battling to to pay their bills, they're battling to live the lifestyle they thought they deserved, and the syndicate got them. So it starts with wanting to solve one little problem, and then you are in the syndicate and, and you go through. What then can we do? I think we need more transparency in the way appointments are made. Firstly, we need to entrench the values that are in the Constitution. Um, Honorable Breitenbach, 
we discussed a little bit earlier about the need for training in ethics. But for me, the sense of it is that we have foundational values in the Constitution. Um, those foundational values are not always built into the codes of conduct that people are going to sign. But also, it, there's no point in getting an MP to sign a code of conduct or to get a minister to swear to the oath of office if you found them already corrupt. Because if Section 195 says people who are employed by government should be people who operate with the highest level of professional ethics, they're not going to operate with the highest level of professional ethics simply because they've signed the code of conduct. You should make sure that when you recruit, you recruit people who are already operating with the highest level of, of, of professional ethics. And then secondly, then train them properly. But lastly, hold them accountable when they do wrong, well, that's with no impunity for anyone. So, Lewis, as well, we've lost our ethical compass, yes. certainly, but we have not lost our legal compass, because it was the law, ultimately, that saved us, or that is in the process of saving us. Uh, we, we survived intact in the Chapter 9 institutions to a certain extent. So, uh, Parliament failed us, the, I mean, the, 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 you know, the legs of government. Uh, executive failed us, Parliament failed us, and what was left was, Chapter 9s didn't fail us, you didn't fail us, but what was left was the law, where you had decided to go. I mean, what is, what, you know, uh, tell us a bit about your struggle in the, in the NPA. Uh, and you've just, congratulations, they've just dropped the charges no, against you. No, they didn't you. drop them. They didn't I drop them. Acquitted. You were acquitted. Yes, oh, a very huge, huge difference. Huge difference. Oh. Huge difference. Um, the, di the difference is about two years and ten million bucks. Yeah, well, that's yeah. a hell of a difference. But I mean, yeah. Um, also, you know, not to underestimate the, the threat of violence to people as well. Actual physical threat of violence. There was a there was a, a threat on your life, and I'm sure on your life too. Several. Several threats. I mean, so so the threats go from, you know, abusing the law and and, and, and trying, as the president has done for for how many years? We, we, we eight, nine, ten years process to actual physical threats um, because these people have a lot to lose. Um, and when I sit here now and I think about what has been accomplished, it's quite extraordinary that the bank accounts are frozen. People are, are I mean, I didn't, I was driving in the car the other day and I got my niece angedraai and to work at the Guptas are fugitives. And it felt like, like a, a fiction. I was like, hey, they're fugitives from justice, the Guptas. How's that? So, you know, it's like, whoa, never thought it was going to happen. The first time you bother you. It should bother me. It shouldn't make you happy. It should bother you. Oh, well, look, it'll bother me later. Can I be happy just for the a moment? The reason that it should bother you is... Under Zuma, they did nothing. Yes. Uh, the, the criminal justice system failed to function because he made it so. Under Ramaphosa, they're all of a sudden functioning because he made it so. They're supposed to be independent. Yes. They shouldn't act on the whim of anybody. It's fine now because they're Absolutely. going after the people Absolutely. that you want them to go after. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But tomorrow they may go after people you don't want them to go after. And then what are you going to do? No. They need to be independent. They shouldn't yeah. act on the whim of a politician. Yeah. How do we assure that? Because I think what you said earlier is, I think, honestly, that South Africans have been so abused for so long around ethics and morality that I see in young people no longer know what is right and what is wrong. No, that can't be there true. There were people sitting at SAPS at the Scopa hearing who didn't understand senior management. What is wrong with a supplier paying for a trip to, uh, of two cops in the supply chain management thing to go to, they, they said the, f the trip was official, but it's, you know, the supply chain, the, su the supplier paid for the tickets to something. It was like, what's the problem? It's, I think, you know, President Zuma has the same issue. Like, what's wrong with me asking a whole lot of people to, 
And then accept that from Hamid. Every no. single person sitting in this room and everywhere else in South Africa knows the difference between right and wrong. We all know it. Whether you choose to ignore it or not, that's a different issue. But everybody knows when you're crossing a line. I don't believe for one moment that anybody doesn't. Lots of people don't care. They seem to have the ability to shrug it off and do whatever. And the rest of us schmucks can't. Uh, no, but I think the schmucks are the... Uh, I mean, if you look at uh, President Donald Trump at the moment and what's happening in the United States in terms of systems and institutions that might not survive him intact, and we'll talk about how we survived intact, um, I think life is an ongoing struggle between the schmucks uh, of good people and the really bad people. It just seems to be a, an, an ongoing project, which is also something you believe in, that democracy and the Constitution and freedom is not something that arrived one day. And as a journalist in the middle of this, because I was there in the 1980s, I thought, ah, Mandela's out, cool, it's going to, you know, and we were naive to believe that that was, I mean, we, I don't know why we were. Well, uh, the good oaks always win. Yeah. Uh, that, say that again? The good oaks always the win. The good oaks always win. Yeah. <laughs> it may but, take time, it may be difficult, but the good oaks always win. But uh, that's exactly, I, I never for one moment did I think the day would not come for the Guptas and others who are implicated in state capture to be brought to book. I mean, my Twitter timeline, I always would say that, that, you know, the sun will come tomorrow, because it was going to come. The question was, we always know that lies are more agile than the truth, but the truth eventually does arrive, and justice mm -hmm. wins all the time. Absolutely. It's an extremely comforting thing to hear you say, because for a very long time, and, you know, there was a feeling that the struggle is so huge. I mean, they, you know, there were assassination squads roaming around uh, KwaZulu-Natal, you know, um, and, and, and uh, both of them, I mean, Glenda says she doesn't do fear, she doesn't do uh, anxiety, she doesn't do those things. I don't believe that, because the actual pressure, when you are at the forefront of, of this fight, these women are warriors, uh, absolute warriors, and... Um, the notion that truth will triumph is extraordinary because we've seen it in this country several times, over and over again. But it doesn't mean we should, we should relax. What do we do now? Uh, both of you earlier on said the systems have survived intact. You've survived intact. Acquitted. Um, you you've survived. You, you, you gifted us the state of capture report before, before we left, before you left office. Yes. Well, I would say what we need to know is the reason we are on the pedestal of hope again is because women, men, and children outside government eventually became part of the deal. The opposition in parliament also uh, pumped up its actions. In other words, to strengthen constitutional democracy, we don't just need chapter nine institutions and the courts. We need all of the elements of our strong democracy to work. And throughout the troubled times, these institutions were all working. But I would think of all of the institutions, the one institution that wasn't working well was the people. I think the people had subcontracted democracy to politicians, to courts, and to the media. And when things really, really, really went badly, and when the rain started to really hit us, and when Minister Nene was fired so randomly, and it really hit all of us, people awoke and realized that this can't happen. This time we shouldn't wait until things go wrong. And Glenis is right that even the most benevolent 
of leaders are going to have propensities for human failings. And whether the Ramaphosa presidency goes to the light or to the darkness will depend on what role is being played by the people. And the Lord. Does, does, Ram, does President Ramaphosa get to fear the dark side of the ANC or does he get to fear the light side of the people, the opposition and the law? And, and th that means that we'll have to keep that fight going, that fight for goodness, that fight for justice. And, and ultimately it's a fight for peace because as long as there's injustice and corruption is an injustice, because it undermines social justice and other forms of justice. As long as there's injustice, there can't be sustainable peace anywhere. The white monopoly capital campaign last year, or for the last few months, nearly broke down this country. And I still believe that there are, there's damage that needs to be repaired. But why it caught fire was because a lot of the work around social justice had not been done. So my invitation to people is, we need to, to do three things. Play our role in promoting integrity within the state and within society. And play our role in promoting social justice. And lastly, play our role in building capacity within the state. And that's your point earlier about training on ethics, but also training on good administration, public administration, yeah. which is the law side. Because some <laughs> of the wrongs came because people didn't know some of the rules on public administration. Very simple rules. Very simple rules. Certainly. Uh. Is Parliament, the role of Parliament in this, 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 this new Ramaphoria, Ramapantha? Uh, we have Ace Makashule there. We have, we have people there who've been accommodated for now. But Abidid Lamini. What do you mean for now? They're there. Yeah. It's not guaranteed that it's for now. Uh, Ace Makashule is uh, infamous for, for corruption. I mean, he is Mr. Corruption. Uh, Gigaba is still in the cabinet. But Abida Lamina uh, uh, truly must be the most useless human being on the face of the earth. She's in the cabinet. Um, and, and they're there. So it, it just shows that Cyril is just a lick of paint. He doesn't have control of his own organization. He has no power in the, in the National Executive Committee. Clearly, he didn't get the cabinet he wanted. He looked like a deflated soccer ball when he made the announcement. Um, and I would be too if I'd had Gigaba and Batabini Lamini and Mokonyana in my cabinet. Department of Women. No. I mean, have um, you ever a Department of Women? She's just destroyed single-handedly the entire social grant system that mostly are women, dependent upon it. And she's now in the Department of Women. Well, good luck to her. I'm sure he's going to phase it out, and that can be the only logical explanation. But, you know, you're, you're very kind when you say chapter 9 institutions, and they did play a huge role. Uh, Parliament failed us miserably, but the opposition parties, I think, played a great role. Mm. Um, the judiciary were magnificent and continue to be mm. so. Absolutely. We've got a, the best constitution in the world, and mm. that's thanks to people like yourself. Mm. But you'd have, and, and, and the citizens of South Africa were, were like Trojans. They were m magnificent. <laughs> they stood up and took back their own country. But you leave out uh, the the press, the, the, the investigative journalists like yourself, uh, Scorpio, Amabungani, and the investigative journalists in this country should all get the enormous crux. It's them that place this thing where we are. You. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, I, 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 I only say, I, I just want to say one thing about that, that 
I could not do what I did or we could not do what we did without whistleblowers, people whose lives were placed at risk in government, good people, wonderful people, some in the ANC, many in the DA, some in the EFF. And while this struggle was happening, a lot of people would say to me, but how come you're not depressed? How come you... I mean, I could sleep at night because I knew that there were people fighting. And I learned really truly for the first time what the meaning of the word comrade is, uh, the true meaning of the word, where... Uh, you look after other people and um, I just wanted to ask for the audience here because the project ahead requires solidarity, requires human solidarity, Certainly. requires a cross-class solidarity and requires us to actually go, get out of our comfort zones. Other than the marching, what can we, I think we're a white middle class audience here, um, unless I need my glasses. Um, how, do, how do these lovely people who've come to hear you who are celebrating and carry, all of us carry the burden of our history? How do they make a difference, uh, you know, f from both of you warriors? Give them some inspiration in terms of what they should do. She's going to be kinder than me, so she can go first. <laughs> <laughs> well, firstly is to thank the people of South Africa and the world for reclaiming South Africa, as you've just said, um, Marianne. And I must also um, uh, congratulate the investigative journalists for... Uh, stepping in and, 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 and really um, uh, uncovering the last piece of state capture which has now led to the change that puts us at the dawn of democracy. What do our people do? The first thing I would say we need to do is never again should we find ourselves on the verge of despair again. Never again should we allow things to degenerate to the point where we're really at the door of the winter of despair as we were last year. But, and also, never again should we allow politicians to divide and rule us on the basis of race, on the basis of gender, on the basis of class, as a dead cat to divert us from wrongdoing, including state capture, corruption, and all other forms. But how are we going to be able to avoid the divisions? One of the things we ask you to do as Stellenbosch University, as the law, law school, at, at law faculty at Stellenbosch University is, let's all join hands to advance social justice. Because of the continuing divisions of the past, primarily around inequality and poverty, it was easy to introduce the white monopoly campaign and get some people, some even physically going to defend the Gupta compound because they were getting some pay from the process, and, but there was also resonance with the fact that mm. some people are poor. I always say that when somebody, a member of your family has been killed, often people don't care who goes to jail. You probably have seen that. They just want somebody to go to jail. But people exploited poverty, and through political entrepreneurship, they used the cry for social justice as a way, as a buffer against uh, the fight to end corruption and state capture. So, well, so you come in and prevent social justice being used against us. And secondly, I then also say that as an ordinary person, you are the eyes and ears of the state. And the state is not the governing party. The state is broader. You are the eyes and ears, and get involved in social accountability. And what is social ac accountability? Is whatever you see, 
you find a way to end it if you can end it. If there's nothing you can do to end it, report it. That's social accountability. Somebody says they've built a bridge and there's none. You have eyes and ears and you can tell that the bridge wasn't built. And, and lastly, if you're in business or in any, um, in any place where you have some skills, transfer those skills to as little as preschools right up to um, the, the, the CEOs and, and, and functionaries and parastatals, local government and broader government. Lilith, what are your... <laughs> um, so I'm, I'm not a politician. I'm never going to be a very good one, but I'm going to sound like one now. The, the Democratic Alliance believes in freedom, fairness and opportunity. So do I. Uh, it's coincidental that we both believe in the same thing. Um, and Tuli's quite right. The, the big issue here is social injustice. Uh, South Africa is the most unequal society in the world. And as long as we allow that to remain, we will always be vulnerable to this kind of thing happening. So the haves must give up something to uplift the have-nots. You've got to get out of your comfort zone. You've got to do something for other people. You've got to give up a little to get a lot. Uh, and as long as we can't do that, South Africa is not going to, to work. We have to get to a point where all South Africans are, have the same shot at prosperity that we have. And that's the only way we're going to make this country work. And, and, and we can all do that. It's the easiest thing in the world. We can all do that. Something we can do. I think it's, it's a, an important thing also because uh, I, I think when someone asks you for something, even in the street, you must give. We live in a place where it's a person who begs for money at a traffic light doesn't choose to do so. And you might be annoyed by it because there's so many people, there's so much need, there's so much poverty, it's really hard for people. If you have, as much as it annoys you, as much as you think you shouldn't be doing it, as much as you think your tax is being spent somewhere else, give. Because uh, the pain is enormous and the abuse is enormous. And if we have a little bit and you can give some more, then please do. I just wanted to end up with reading uh, this, you know, Glenys's bit in the rule of law. I don't know if there's time for questions afterwards. You've got this. Uh, if we do that, there's no other country in the world like South Africa. If we do that, if we care, we're unbeatable. I love to see South Africa in 200 years' time, and I'll never leave. Never. I'm not here because I have nowhere else to go. I'm here because there is nowhere else I want to be. And I think that it is very beautiful, and I think that uh, that sentiment works for me because of the two of you and your courage and your bravery and your honesty and your... No, I know, but yeah. it's not been easy. It's not been easy. And thank you for, for what you've done for the country. Thank you so much. Um, I'm sure there's no time for questions. There's no time. <laughs> I've, I've hogged it all. Um, thank you very much to both of you for coming. Thank you, Amri, for inviting us. Um, there's so much more we can do and say. Please just support these two magnificent human Thanks, beings. Marianne. Here we go. Thank I you. just want to say, um, exit is that side, and the two authors there is a table where they're going to sign books. Please um, get no longer books. whispering to power. Um, Tully's biography would be on sale there. Um, Rule of Law, Glynis. Um, and you can have, you can ask a question or two to the authors. Please. And they are to so break. worth it. They are so, so worth it. Please get the books. Thank you. Thank you, guys. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you.